listening to Life Church Podcast with Pastor David Sinclair. Your scripture today comes from 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Well, most of us love a good reunion. People who have been separated, brought back together. Uh, A good reunion is always happy, exciting, joyful, fun. Uh, And there's a famous picture of a reunion that's kind of become iconic in American culture. I think we're going to get it up on the screen here in a second. Maybe. Going to get a picture up on the screen here in a second. There it is. Yes. Uh, My guess is you have seen this photo before. Um, It's a picture of a family being reunited after the husband and father had been uh, prisoner of war for five and a half years uh, in Vietnam. And it won the Pulitzer Prize and has kind of become an iconic American photo because of all it seems to represent about reunions and family and being together and that sort of thing. Um, so I was, I was looking for this picture because I, I've seen it before. I, I really like it. It's called Burst of Joy. Um, and, and I did a little tiny bit of research on it and discovered that this reunion is not what it looks like, unfortunately. So here's the depressing and sad story behind the photo which is that three days before this man arrived back in the U.S., he got a Dear John letter from his wife, uh, who told him that she was planning on divorcing him, and she started divorce proceedings immediately after he arrived in the United States. And their family broke apart. Uh, so I was reading, I was like, oh no, this beautiful picture. Um, and, and, and now when I look at the picture, I don't feel the same things I felt before I knew this because this beautiful picture of a joyful reunion is tainted. It's become ambivalent. And I, I, think, I think that's how reunions often are for us right now, um, that we tend to look forward to them, we're excited about them, but then often they're not all that we hoped they would be. They're tainted by loss or by grief or by friction or frustration or whatever. Um, And so even the reunions that are most hoped for turn out not to be everything we hoped for. And of course, those are the reunions that actually happen. There are lots of times when we don't get a reunion at all. Um, There are many people uh, from this war and from wars all over the world throughout history when people didn't come home from them. So there was no reunion. Um, So this is better than that, I suppose. Um, But our text today is all about reunions. Um, And we, of course, all have this sense that reunions aren't always what we hoped they would be. But in this text, we get a picture of the perfect, permanent reunion. 
Uh, and that's what the entire letter of 1 Thessalonians is about, but particularly the text we're looking at today. Um, and so Paul describes a reunion that won't disappoint us. So let's, let's take a look at it. So first of all, some quick background and summary about the letter as a whole. It's a pretty short letter, and it has a very, very joyful tone to it. It's one of Paul's very joyful letters. And that tone can, can sometimes disguise the fact that the letter is about some very serious and very difficult things. We learn from the book of Acts that Paul spent three Sabbaths in uh, the town of Thessalonica preaching the gospel, and a small group of people became Christians, but then the Jews in that town rose up to persecute them, and Paul had to hustle away from Thessalonica and leave this little band of believers all by themselves, facing pretty severe persecution. And so Paul is, is deeply concerned about them. In fact, he's very stressed out and anxious about it. Uh, twice in this letter, he says he couldn't stand not knowing what was happening to them. And so when he gets to Athens, Timothy is with him. So he actually sends Timothy back to check on them and to make sure that everything is okay. And this letter is written when Timothy returns to Paul with a good report. And so Paul, that's why Paul has this really joyful tone, because Timothy has given him a good report. The Christians are okay in Thessalonica. They're not falling away. They're not falling into temptation. They're growing in their faith. They think about you very uh, fondly and happily. They miss you. That's the report Timothy brings back to Paul. And Paul is just overjoyed by this, and so he's writing this letter to them to express that. He also expresses that he longs to see them in person. Uh, he longs for a reunion with them. Um, he even says that he tried to go back to them, but Satan blocked him. So, so there's this spiritual warfare going on that's keeping Paul from having a reunion with the Thessalonians. And he knows that they're struggling with two particular things. First of all, persecution. They're, they're being badly persecuted, severely persecuted. And secondly, death of loved ones. And in all likelihood, um, the, these deaths are related to the persecution. People in, are probably dying for their faith. And so he knows that the Thessalonians also are longing for reunion. They want to be reunited with the people who have died. But, of course... Death is blocking them, just like Satan is blocking Paul from returning to Thess Thessalonica. Death is blocking uh, them from being reunited to their loved ones. So at the heart of this letter is a longing for reunion. Paul wants to be reunited with the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians want to be reunited with their dead loved ones. So the heart of Paul's response is our text for today, 1 Corinthians 4, 13 through 18. And in that, at the heart of that text is a Greek word, uh, parousia. So I don't always love throwing around Greek words because um, we don't necessarily need to, to parse the text like that in a sermon. But this word is actually really, really important. And in, uh, and in Latin, it's translated advent, and in English is translated coming or appearance. Um, and so this word is right at the heart of the passage. And it describes, this word parousia is used, Paul uses it to talk about the coming or appearance or advent of Christ that will happen in the future. It hasn't happened yet for the Thessalonians and it hasn't happened yet for us. We're still waiting for the parousia of Christ. But in this passage, Paul does three things. He describes the parousia of Christ, he tells us what it means, and then he tells us what our response to this news should be. So that's what we're looking at today. 
the description of the parousia, what that means, and what our response to this news should be. So first of all, the description of the event. It's important to note that this event is still in the future. It's in the future for the Thessalonians. It's still in the future for us. In the future, we don't know exactly when, Christ will become present to us here on this earth. Our text describes Jesus as coming down, um, making himself present to us in a way that he is not present right now. And that is the transformative event, which is the beginning of God's future. It's the event upon which everything else depends. So this future advent of Jesus will be like the first advent in a very specific way, in that it is centered around resurrection. So not Jesus' resurrection. Jesus was resurrected in the first advent. Um, in this future advent, it will be the resurrection of Jesus' people that will be right at the center of this event. And so the resurrection of Jesus' people will happen when Jesus appears or comes down from heaven. So Jesus himself is going to come down from heaven. So it's important to note here that we don't enter into God's future. God's future doesn't begin by us dying and going to heaven, which is kind of the way Christians tend to talk about it, that the goal of our salvation is when I die, my soul will go to heaven. Clearly from this text, that is not God's goal for us. Um, that is not God's future. That is our present reality. That's the very thing the Thessalonians are so grief-stricken about. The people they love have died and gone to heaven. Um, and, and, and they wish it weren't so. And Paul wishes it weren't so. So the solution, God's future, is not about us going up to heaven. Paul says, no, 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 quite the opposite. God's future begins when Jesus comes down to earth. When Jesus becomes present to us here. And so that is the thing that we are looking forward to. Death is the thing that is going to be put to an end by Jesus's parousia. Now, our text tells us that Jesus coming down will be accompanied by three things. A loud voice, a loud command, excuse me, the voice of an archangel and the sound of a trumpet. And it's worth noting that each of these three things um, is essentially something associated with kingly power. Um, commands are the things that kings do, and then the voice of an archangel and the trumpet, uh, these are, these are uh, pictures of heralds, the people who go before a king and announce that he is, he is coming. So first, uh, a loud command. Kings, of course, give commands, which are instantly obeyed. And it seems clear to me from our text that the command that is going to accompany Jesus, it's going to come from Jesus himself, is a resurrection command. It will be a loud command for the resurrection of God's people. It reminds me of John 11, 43 through 44, which says, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. That's what's in our future, a loud command in which Jesus says to his people, people, come out, and we will come out of death. It is a command that cannot be disobeyed, just like Lazarus couldn't disobey it. We will not be able to disobey it either. And so that is why Paul says that at the parousia of Christ, the dead will rise. He means it. The dead will rise like Lazarus was risen, except not really like Lazarus, more like Jesus. 
The dead will rise like Jesus rose, a permanent resurrection, a perfect resurrection. So the commandment of Jesus is an authority that no one and no thing can resist. Jesus is the king who has authority over all things, including death. Second, the voice of an archangel. So kings have heralds who announce them, and we know that this is true of Jesus as well. He's a king who has his heralds. All the major events in Jesus' first advent were accompanied by the voice of an angel. So we shouldn't be surprised that this one is too. Uh, So for example, at his conception, it was announced to Mary by an angel. Uh, His birth was announced to the shepherds by a host of angels. And of course, we have a very popular Christmas song that calls them heralds. Hark, that means listen, the herald angels sing. They're announcing the coming of, a, of the newborn king. It's nice how it rhymes. Um, and then, of course, his own resurrection was heralded by angels. When the women go to the tomb, they encounter angels who tell them he's not here, he's risen, um, he's going to meet you in Galilee, so get going. Um, so, uh, so we have a herald who is going to announce the coming of Jesus as heralds announce the coming of a king. And then, of course, the trumpet call of God. Heralds use trumpets um, to get everybody's attention and to say, pay attention, something big is about to happen. Um, And in other parts of Scripture, Paul thinks of a trumpet, uses the idea of the picture of a trumpet, as, as, as calling our attention not only to the return of Christ, but specifically to the resurrection that will accompany that return. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that when Jesus returns, the trumpet will sound The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So the trumpet points not only to the return of Christ, but specifically to the resurrection that accompanies that return. So that's the event. Jesus will come down. He will make himself present to us, to this earth. He'll be accompanied by a loud command, a resurrection command, the voice of an archangel, and the sound of a trumpet. So that's the event. But what does it mean is the next question. Well, Paul tells us very, very straightforwardly what it means. It means we will be with the Lord forever. That's what he says it means. We will be with the Lord forever. So to fully understand this short little sentence, I think we have to go back to that word parousia and figure out what it means. Paul is making that little word work really hard for him because in his time and place, uh, the word parousia meant a lot more to his audience than the word coming or appearance means to us, an English-speaking audience. So parousia means two specific things, which Paul's audience would immediately know about and think about. So first, the word parousia referred to a divine presence, which was made known by healing. So the presence of a divine being, God, who makes his presence known through healing. So Paul's readers, when they hear the word parousia, are instantly going to associate Jesus' appearance with the presence of God and the presence of healing. And the healing that will occur when Jesus is present to us is the kind of healing that can be only be accomplished by God. It's healing from death. That's what the Bible calls resurrection. So healing is the sign of Jesus' kingship because it's healing that no one can do except for God himself. So that's the first meaning of the word parousia. The second meaning of the word parousia is that the word was used to refer to a royal visit. So like the Roman emperor visiting one of his colonies, like Thessalonica. So kind of a state visit, that sort of a thing. So Paul's readers, again, when they hear the word parousia, will instantly associate Jesus' appearance with the coming of a king or a ruler. 
And so the verse that speaks of those who are still alive being caught up in the air with Jesus and those who have been resurrected uh, coming, coming with Jesus is a picture of this kind of royal visit. So imagine this, when a king or emperor, think in Paul's time period, first century, when a king or emperor visited one of his towns, he would be accompanied by a big entourage. He doesn't just come by himself. He's got his staff and his security and all of his people coming with him. And the city that he's visiting is going to be looking for his arrival. And when he's a little ways off, they send out a welcoming committee. We sometimes call this rolling out the red carpet. They send out a welcoming committee to meet him. They're like, welcome, we're so happy you're here. And then the entourage and the welcoming committee all escort the king back into the city that he's visiting. So they don't go out and meet him and then all go back to Rome. They go out and meet him and all come back to Thessalonica or Philippi or whatever colony he's, he's visiting. We actually still do this exact same thing today. I don't know if you remember this, but in 2015, President Barack Obama was the commencement speaker for Lake Area Technical Institute, um, which I knew about. A lot of my students uh, come from Watertown, and so this was kind of a big deal. Uh, that's that pre President Obama was coming there, and he apparently had visited all uh, 49 states, and South Dakota was the last one on his list, so he was like, I got to go to South Dakota. Uh, so he did. Um, and so this, you can imagine, is a big deal. We don't usually have the President of the United States speaking at, uh, well, frankly, any of our uh, institutions of higher education in South Dakota, and maybe I can say let alone at a technical institute, although Lake Area Tech is a fantastic school. But um, so I was thinking about this and I looked at pictures and it's exactly the way Paul describes it. So uh, Obama turned out was like an hour or two late. Um, so they, they had sent out a welcoming committee to Watertown Airport, just a little tiny regional airport, and it was all of South Dakota's dignitaries. Uh, John Thune was there, Mike Rounds, uh, the president of Lake Area Technical Institute, the mayor of Watertown, like they're all there, and they're just all hanging around. They get, there's tons of shots because Obama was, was late, and they're just standing there waiting. They're clearly all very excited, smiling. Um, nobody was talking about Republican versus Democrat. They were just like, whoa, this is exciting. President Obama's coming to, coming to Watertown. And then when Obama did finally arrive, of course, he came on Air Force One, the airplane landed, and Obama comes down out of the stairs. But of course, he's not the only one. He has an entourage with him. He's got his staff, and he's got his security, and he's all these people. And so then you see pictures of Obama surrounded by his entourage and the welcoming committee. And then they don't all get on the plane and go back to Washington, D.C. They all get into cars and drive into Watertown. They go to Lake Area Technical Institute because that's where they're going. So this idea of, of a welcoming committee is not a welcoming committee who then goes away. It's a welcoming committee who escorts the person back to the place that they're, they're coming to. Um, and so we, we do this in our own culture. This isn't just a, an event that happened 2,000 years ago. We still do it. So the description Paul gives of Jesus' parousia is just like Barack Obama coming to Watertown in 2015. Uh, Jesus will be accompanied by an entourage, which points to his power and authority. And in Jesus's case, his entourage is the, those Christians who have died and are now raised to life again. They are his entourage. They will accompany him, pointing to his power and authority. And then, of course, Jesus will be given a welcoming committee as well. And that welcoming committee will be uh, those Christians who are still alive at the time of his parousia. 
they will somehow be empowered to go out early and greet Jesus. Uh, Paul uses the phrase, they will be caught up in the air. I don't know, I honestly don't know exactly what this means, but it means they're the welcoming committee, and they are going to be given whatever power is necessary to go up to meet Jesus a little bit in advance, and then not get whisked away to heaven, but all of them together come back down here to the earth, which compared to heaven is like Watertown compared to Washington, D.C., I suppose. And yet, nonetheless, Jesus isn't just planning a visit to earth. He is going to make earth his permanent headquarters, his permanent home. This is where he's coming forever. And so those who are dead in Christ will be his entourage on the day he arrives, and those who are still alive in Christ on that day will be his welcoming committee. And then all of them together escort Jesus back here to the earth itself. So these two meanings of the word parousia, a divine presence accompanied by healing, and the visit of a king or an emperor, uh, they help us understand what Paul's little phrase, we will be with the Lord forever, means. So I think there's two ways we can say this little phrase. The first way is, we will be with the Lord We will be with the one who has absolute authority to rule over all things. He is the ultimate king and emperor. All his enemies will be banished and defeated. And we know it's all of them because death will be banished and defeated. There's no greater enemy than death. If death has been defeated, all the enemies have been defeated. The king has come. We are present to him. He is present to us. And again, we will know he's the king because we will be completely and permanently healed. We will be resurrected. We will be glorified. It is because of this act of absolute power that we can be with him forever. Not temporarily, forever. Death is the thing that parts us and ends covenants. That's why in the marriage covenant you say, till death parts us. There won't be any death. So there's no parting from Jesus after this time. This is the ultimate, perfect final, permanent reunion. So that's the first way we can say it. We will be with the Lord. But the other way we can say this sentence is we will be with the Lord. Because we all will be present to the Lord, we will also be present to each other. We will be with the Lord. The dead and the living will be resurrected and reunited. It will be like that photo without any crappy background information, essentially. Um, Those Christians who are already dead will be raised up and will be in Christ's entourage. Those Christians who are not yet dead will be empowered to be the welcoming committee to greet him. And so they will all be together surrounding Jesus. So all Christians together will escort Jesus back here. So here's the good news. I don't know when Jesus is coming back, but whether we in this room are alive or dead when that day happens, we will be with Jesus and we will be with each other. So what the parousia means is that this will be one amazing reunion. The church will not only be reunited with Christ, the church in person, the church will be reunited with each other. And of course, that doesn't just mean us, it means all those people who have put their trust in Jesus um, from the beginning of of the created world. 
Uh, I remember once when I was a kid having to, I was at my grandparents and we were reading the Bible and we were reading through a genealogy and I was like, oh, why do we have to read these dumb genealogies? They're so long and they're so boring. And my Grammy said, how else will you know these people's names when you meet them? And, I, and she was not joking. She was dead serious. I was like, well, that's a good point. Uh, those are the people we're going to be with when Jesus returns, when the parousia happens, as well as unnumbered ones who we don't know and we'll have to learn their names, and they will have to learn ours. But that will be the reunion. And so Paul has one last line in this little text, which is how we should respond to this news. So there's the event, there's what it means, and how, should we, how we should respond to this new knowledge. And the response is, encourage one another with these words. That's what Paul says we should do with this knowledge, with this news. The Thessalonians were facing many difficulties. They were being persecuted, and as far as I can determine, they were being severely persecuted. Many of them had died, perhaps probably because of the persecution. They were separated from Paul, their father in the faith. We face many difficulties too. Thankfully, we're not being killed for our faith right now, but we still face death. I think the prayer and sharing time made it clear that there are lots of difficulties in this room. And my guess is there's lots that didn't get shared or didn't get named this morning. Um, So we face death. People we love or we ourselves are sick or dying. We have many, many heartaches. Each of us does, even if not everyone knows about them. Different griefs losses, temptations, frustrations. You know what they are in your own life. I know what they are in my own life. Um, So we, like the church in Thessalonica, we need encouragement. So Paul says this is it. This is the encouragement we need. Um, That the end of the story is not whatever grief or loss or temptation or frustration you're facing right now. The end of the story is permanent reunion living reunion with Christ and with all of Christ's people. So Paul says we're supposed to encourage each other with these words. So here it is. I'm going to try to do that. Do you feel sad, lonely, scared, anxious, tempted, tempted, frustrated, angry, whatever today? My guess is all of us can say yes to that question in one way or another. Here is your word of encouragement. We believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead. Therefore, we know that he will come again. And on that day, the dead in Christ will rise and accompany him in his parousia. And we also know that those who are still living in Christ will be empowered to go out and meet Christ in this amazing entourage. And so... We will then, all of us together, escort him back here to his kingdom, to his creation, to the earth itself. And that will be the beginning of a never-ending future that God has planned for us. So your future holds the best, the most amazing family reunion you can imagine. Jesus is coming back and he's bringing the entire Christian family with him. And so if you have put your trust in Jesus, be encouraged That is what is coming. And Paul says, not only you be encouraged, but go encourage other people also. Um, 
I just heard recently uh, a great story uh, that about Cadence, I hope it's okay that I tell this story, that she had a friend at college, I don't know if it's her roommate or who, um, who's a Christian but feeling very stressed and anxious about just the situation of the world and then of course the idea of God's future being that she's going to die and go to heaven and she was very unhappy about that and told, told Cadence, and Cadence apparently said, I should have Charity or, or Wade up here telling this story, apparently said, oh, goodness, you've got it all wrong. That's not God's future at all. God's future is that Jesus is going to come back here to the earth. He's going to raise the dead. The earth will be recreated and renewed, and all things will be put right. So that's God's future. And apparently her friend said, oh, that's way better. I didn't know that. Um, so there's one of our own going out and encouraging others uh, with the good news of Jesus' parousia. And so we want to not only be encouraged ourselves, but to go out and encourage others with this incredibly good news. Um, and let me also say that if you haven't yet put your trust in Christ, now is the time to do it. This is an invitation to put your trust in Jesus Christ. I encourage you to do that. Jesus is the king of all things, but here's the really good news. He's not like the kings and the emperors and the politicians that we see or encounter in our history books or on our TV screens or our phones or whatever. Jesus' power is for your healing. Jesus never uses his power for himself. He always uses it for us. He is the king who loves his people. And so he invites you today to trust him, to recognize him as the true Lord and king. He is coming in power and you can be one of the people who is either in his entourage or in his welcoming committee. It doesn't really matter which group you're in because we all end up in the same place, right next to Jesus and right next to each other. So, no matter when Jesus returns, whether any one of us in this room is alive or dead when it happens, I don't know. But I do know that when Jesus appears, we will be with the Lord forever. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the king who is coming in power and glory. Thank you that on the day you return, we will be re reunited not only with you, but with all those who trust in you. We long for that day, just like Paul longed to see the Thessalonians. We pray, Lord, that you would come soon. Until then, please send your Holy Spirit to encourage us with the knowledge that you are coming. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us uh, the ability uh, to encourage others with this good news as well. Amen.